1: today's episode relates to violent crimes against children it will not be suitable for all listeners please keep that in mind before continuing on december 7th 2003 Thirteen-year-old Daniel Morecambe left his home in the Queensland hinterland town of Palmwoods to go to the Sunshine Plaza shopping centre in Maroochydore. He planned to get a haircut and look for Christmas presents. He had begged his twin brother Bradley to go with him. The twins went to the plaza together on the bus often, but on this rainy day Bradley didn't want to go, so Daniel went alone. Their joint birthday was only 12 days away, and shortly after that it would be Christmas. Despite having to go by himself, Daniel was happy. He was excited to buy his parents something special for Christmas. Daniel left his home on Wombai Palmwoods Road and made the 1km 20-minute walk from his house to the bus stop underneath the Keel Mountain overpass. He passed a small service station along the way. The owner, Jenny, noticed him walking alone just after 1pm in the direction of the bus stop. Sheltered beneath the overpass on Nambour Connection Road was an unofficial bus stop. It's unmarked, but buses would pick up and drop off passengers there if requested. The grass on the side of the road was worn to dirt where buses had pulled in and out. It is a curved stretch of roadway that begins in the south at Forest Glen and ends at the subtropical hinterland town of Nambour to the north. Around seven kilometres in length, it takes six minutes to drive from one end to the other. There are four lanes, two in each direction. The road is framed on both sides by trees and bushes, and it is always busy with local and tourist traffic. Daniel had caught the bus from here to the shopping plaza many times before. Standing underneath the overpass, he waited for the 1.35 scheduled afternoon bus service to Sunshine Plaza. Driving time from the bus stop to the plaza was about 15 to 20 minutes. The spot where Daniel waited for the bus was just a short distance away from the Big Pineapple, a popular tourist landmark on what is known as the Sunshine Coast. The overpass is also in view of the nearby Suncoast Church. The bus Daniel was expecting had broken down, 750 metres before the overpass, but it was out of his sight. Due to the breakdown, a replacement bus had already been dispatched, but the driver had been instructed by the duty controller to run an express service and not stop along the way. At 2.15, after Daniel had been waiting 45 minutes, this replacement bus approached him. Daniel signaled for the bus to stop. The driver saw him signal, but he continued on as instructed. He gestured to Daniel that another bus was coming, as a small shuttle bus was only a few minutes behind, stopping to pick up the stranded passengers along the route. A female passenger confronted the driver about not stopping for Daniel, who she had seen trying to flag down the bus. Just three minutes later, At 2.18pm, the small shuttle bus reached Daniel's bus stop. However, during those three minutes, Daniel had vanished without a trace. Palmwoods is a small country town in Queensland's hinterland, nestled just off the Bruce Highway. With just over 5,000 residents, it's a close-knit and unassuming town, 20 minutes from the Sunshine Coast tourist resort town of Maloolaba. The land around was once covered in pineapple plantations, which propped up the area's farming industry. In the early 2000s, Bruce and Denise Mawcombe purchased a large family home at the northern end of Palmwoods, closer to the smaller town of Woomba. They had three young boys so the spacious four-bedroom home on a stunning five acres was the perfect family home bruce and denise were regional franchises for the jim's mowing business and bruce was a keen gardener so he was drawn to the sprawling garden and the old barn which used to be used for storing pineapples from the local plantations they had moved from another house close by so the area was familiar to them from a young age the boys were used to riding their bikes around and having their own independence When the twins were six, Daniel was hit by a four-wheel drive out the front of the family's house. It was okay, but spent the night in the hospital. They were resilient kids. By 2003, the family had been in their new home for two and a half years, and their sons, Dean, aged 15, and the twins, Daniel and Bradley, aged 13, were entrenched in their local community. The boys had moved schools to Bardina, and they spent weekends helping their parents do up their property. They had a dam which they stocked with fish like Australian bass, golden perch and barramundi, and the boys helped their father plant over a hundred fruit trees. The boys loved spending time at home and exploring the area. Bruce Morecambe described Daniel as a shy, quiet boy who would pick flowers and collect knickknacks for his mother on the way home from school. He and twin Bradley were best mates and were always together. Bruce and the twins had befriended two ponies at a local plant nursery. Although not technically twins, as the ponies were born a day apart to different mothers, but the same father, the boys still formed a special bond with them. When they were old enough, the ponies came to live with the Morkhams at their property. Daniel named his pony Bullet, and Bradley's pony was called Sorrento. The boys would walk them around and ride them every second day. They had ducks, chickens, cats, and Daniel's other best buddy was their German shepherd, Chief. Chief was very protective of Daniel. Daniel's shy and quiet temperament led him to have a special way with animals. He was kind and patient, and it was no surprise to his family that he wanted to become a vet. The Morecambe family was close, and as mid-2003 approached, their mowing business had over 50 franchisees. Bruce and Denise looked to quieten down their lives, so they sold off half of them and planned a Greek holiday to celebrate their 20th wedding anniversary. After their holiday in October 2003, bruce and denise rejigged their business and decided to run their operations from home so they could spend more time with the boys the afternoon daniel had gone to the shopping center bruce and denise morcombe arrived home from a work christmas party in brisbane about 4:30. they had wanted their three sons to go too but the boys decided to stay home and pick passion fruits on a neighboring farm Neither Dean nor Daniel was home when Bruce and Denise arrived. Bradley told his parents Dean was at a friend's house, and Daniel had left to go to Sunshine Plaza earlier in the day, but he wasn't home yet. Bruce and Denise immediately believed something was wrong. They called the bus company and learned of the problems with the broken down bus that afternoon. They drove along the bus route, expecting to find Daniel stranded somewhere along the way, but he was nowhere to be found. At 7.30 they drove to Maruchidor police station. Daniel's description was noted and an alert was put out for patrol officers to be on the lookout for him. Bruce and Denise were told to go home and wait for Daniel in case he returned home and if he didn't they could file a missing persons report the next day. They spent the remainder of the night calling friends and family to check if Daniel had wound up at their houses but no one had heard from him. Using flashlights, they searched their own property in case Daniel was in the sheds or stables, at the dam, or amongst the fruit trees. They also headed back to the bus stop, but they weren't sure what they were supposed to be searching for. By now it was night, and Daniel was afraid of the dark. They were frantic with worry. Bruce and Denise stayed up on the couch waiting all night, but Daniel didn't return home. At 8am the next morning, they returned to the police station to make a report. 9am police officially named daniel morcom a missing person and released pictures of the smiling boy to the media his disappearance made local news and bruce and denise fronted the media appealing for information over the following days up to 50 state emergency service volunteers began a door knock and a large-scale search of the area rescue helicopters searched from the air to cover more land a mannequin was dressed in the outfit daniel wore on the day he went missing a red billabong brand t-shirt, navy blue shorts and grey globe brand sneakers that was placed beneath the Kill Mountain overpass where Daniel had been waiting to catch the bus. Witnesses came forward and confirmed seeing a child matching Daniel's appearance beneath the overpass between 2.10 and 2.15pm. Some recalled seeing him drawing in the dirt with a stick. The driver of the replacement bus confirmed being flagged by Daniel. The driver of the smaller shuttle bus, who had been told to pick up Daniel and any other stranded passengers, confirmed the bus stop was empty when he arrived three minutes later. Sightings of a blue sedan in the area were reported by other witnesses. They described seeing a young male near the blue car and an adult male with him. Some witnesses saw two adult males in the blue car. A woman confirmed she had seen Daniel waiting under the overpass as she drove past. Moments later, A blue, 80s model car came speeding past her. I could see a person which I thought was a male in the back seat. He was punching and moving violently in the back of the seat, slightly to the right. The woman had attempted to write down the license plate number, but her pen didn't work properly, and she had thrown out the piece of paper she tried to write on. Another witness described a white four-wheel drive vehicle parked near the bus stop. The driver of the first bus and several passengers mentioned seeing an unkempt, gaunt man standing a short distance behind Daniel, presumably also waiting for a bus. He was described as having a tattoo on his shoulder and a goatee beard. When the second bus came by a couple of minutes later, both Daniel and the unknown man were gone. As divers conducted searches of nearby waterways and dams, investigators focused their attention to identifying the unknown man. The news of Daniel's disappearance had by now gained national media attention, but despite an appeal, the stranger from the bus stop never came forward. His identity remained a mystery, and police began to suspect he had some involvement in Daniel's disappearance. Task Force Argos, the child sex offender investigation team of Queensland Police, spoke to known and suspected child sex offenders who lived in the area at the time. A total of 39 known pedophiles were found to be in the vicinity of the bus stop on the day Daniel disappeared. Each had their own alibi, and none could be proven to be the man seen near Daniel. Meanwhile, a vigil was held in support of the Morecambe family at Daniel's school, Siena Catholic College. 400 friends and supporters joined Bruce and Denise and Daniel's brothers at the service. On the 19th of December, Twelve days after he disappeared, it was Daniel and Bradley's 14th birthday. Birthdays were usually a special day for the twins. They would blow out the candles on the cake together and take turns opening their presents. But this was a terrible day for Bradley, with no sense of celebration. On December 21st, 14 days after his disappearance, police reenacted Daniel's movements on the day he vanished to jog the memories of motorists who drove along Nambour Connection Road that day. For the first time since the start of the investigation, the Morecams stated publicly that Daniel had been abducted. Police continued to search homes, fields, and waterways. They collected statements, questioned persons of interest, and checked alibis. They were under pressure to find Daniel and identify the unknown man seen with him at the bus stop. Rumours of a child snatcher kept children from travelling alone, and the lingering terror of when he would strike again kept the local community on edge. Throughout this ordeal, Daniel's parents were never idle. From the day Daniel went missing, Denise and Bruce Morecambe vowed they'd never give up looking for him. They personally followed up every call they received about their son's disappearance, investigated every clue they could, and conducted many of their own searches. They searched areas where they believed Daniel could have been taken or his body disposed of, At each location they would search on their hands and knees for any evidence of their son, even discovering what they thought was a piece of Daniel's red shirt in a junk pile during one search. Christmas passed with the Morecambe family preparing a seat at the dinner table for Daniel despite his absence. 2003 ended with no new discoveries, but the Morecams continued onwards, never giving up hope they would find Daniel. The first day for Daniel service was held on the 20th of April 2004. The colour red had become a symbol of Daniel, and Bruce and Denise launched a thousand red balloons into the sky. They maintained awareness and encouraged others not to forget. Many fundraisers and events were held in his honour, and over a million leaflets calling for information were distributed. By late 2004, the Queensland State Government announced a $250,000 reward, and possible indemnity from prosecution for any information that would help solve Daniel's disappearance. This reward was the biggest in Queensland's history and led to 8,000 calls from the public to Crime Stoppers. Composite sketches of the unknown man seen at the bus stop were drawn up using descriptions given by multiple witnesses. The sketches showed an older Caucasian male with dark hair, heavy brows, lean face, goatee, and a tense jaw. On the first anniversary of Daniel's disappearance, a memorial was unveiled at the area where he vanished. A thousand people attended the service, and a plaque with a message circled with red ribbon thanked the efforts of those who contributed their time and effort in the search. At the end of the plaque it read, Daniel was a much-loved brother of Dean and Bradley, and son of Denise and Bruce. May peace be with you. The Morecambs sold their family home and moved to a smaller house in the same district. After leaving Daniel's bedroom and belongings untouched after all this time, in anticipation of his return, Denise carefully packed away his things and placed the items in a storage shed. By now, Bruce and Denise Morecambe had been bombarded with hundreds of emails and letters full of conspiracy theories and disturbing false information. Mediums, pedophiles, and others contacted the Morecams with many different theories about what had happened, from how he was killed to where he was hidden and everything in between. None of this information ever led anywhere. In February 2005, Bruce and Denise launched the Daniel Morecambe Foundation. The foundation aimed to educate children on personal safety, to assist victims of crime, and to support the families of missing persons. It was paramount in ensuring Daniel wasn't forgotten. Each year on the anniversary of his disappearance, his image and story became headlines in the Australian media once more. As time passed, there were no major breakthroughs with the case. Another $750,000 was donated privately, making the total reward for information on Daniel $1 million. But the reward went unclaimed. The private donation expired in May 2009. The $250,000 reward from the state government still remained on offer. On the day the private donation portion of the reward expired, the media reported a known pedophile, Douglas Jackway could be of interest to police. Jackway had been released from prison in 2003, one month before Daniel disappeared. Jackway had a proven criminal history of snatching young boys in broad daylight for the purpose of sexually assaulting them. The theory Jackway was responsible was further supported by the blue sedan witnesses spotted near the bus stop, which matched a car Jackway owned at the time. He also had tattoos on his shoulder and a goatee beard. Jackway lived in Goodna, an hour and a half drive from the Kill Mountain overpass, and he had plans to be in the area on the day of Daniel's disappearance. He told police his car had broken down near the Kill Mountain overpass the day after Daniel disappeared. Prior to his release, clear evidence had been presented that Jackway was at risk of re-offending, but he was released anyway, and the Queensland government was heavily criticised. Jackway was a solid suspect, but there wasn't enough for an arrest. A full-size model of the unknown man seen near Daniel was placed underneath the Kill Mountain Overpass. Within a few days, the police received another 300 tip-offs from the public. In total, Crime Stoppers received over 20,000 leads during the investigation. More than 100 police officers conducted over 10,000 interviews. But as time passed, the investigation slowed to a halt. There was little doubt Daniel had met with foul play. But there was no concrete evidence to direct police towards an arrest. The coronial inquest into the disappearance of Daniel Morkum began on October 11, 2010, seven years after he disappeared. The Morkums hoped their search for the truth would soon be over. In the 10,000-page police brief given to the coroner, a total of 35 people were listed as high-level persons of interest. Their names were suppressed from the media. Each suspect was referred to by the letter P for person of interest, along with a number. Bruce and Denise Morecambe attended each day of the inquest. They listened to the sordid and disturbingly detailed history of abuse each person of interest had previously perpetrated against children. One person of interest, known as P1, actually confessed he and an accomplice dumped a barrel containing Daniel's body into the Brisbane River. The river was searched, but nothing was found. The confession was later proven false another person of interest known as p5 described as a psychopath who had previously been accused of rape and kidnapping had threatened his girlfriend into giving him an alibi when his girlfriend was asked why she protected him she claimed she was blinded by love p5 had approximately five hours unaccounted for on the day daniel went missing on the 31st of march 2011 P7 was summoned to give evidence. P7 travelled from his home in Western Australia to Brisbane after being told a warrant would be issued for his arrest if he didn't appear. P7 was a tall, lanky man with light-coloured eyes, a goatee, and he wore silver earrings. He had a tattoo of a clown on his shoulder and tattoos of skulls on his arm. Denise Morecambe laid her eyes on him and felt a cold shiver. She felt in that moment after seeing scores of people take the stand, that P7 was the man who took her son. P7's real name was Brett Peter Cowan. He was born on September 18th, 1969, in Bunbury, Western Australia. His parents were Marlene, a homemaker, and Peter, a Vietnam War veteran. The family moved to Queensland, and Cowan grew up in the suburb of Everton Park, around 10 kilometers north of brisbane cowan was described as ordinary with few hobbies interests or social groups he was often overlooked by those around him cowan was raised in a strict military household and was the third of four brothers his father suffered ptsd from his experiences in the vietnam war his mother was a proud member of the community cowan was considered the black sheep of the family He boasted of an extensive history of sexual predation and abuse against children. By age 18, Cowan claimed to have preyed upon up to 30 children aged between 6 and 8, starting when he was around 10 years old. Cowan targeted most of his victims at the local swimming pool in fleeting encounters in order to avoid detection. He later started abusing a younger female relative. The abuse continued over a nine-year period. Cowan claims he would ask for permission first, and only realised he was doing something wrong when he was much older. There is no evidence to suggest Cowan himself had been abused growing up. In his teens, Cowan attended Marcellin College, a Catholic high school in Northside, Brisbane. He was a loner, prone to violent behaviour towards people he perceived as weaker. He also displayed a cruel streak towards animals, On weekend camps during bush skills courses, he paraded dead lizards and possums he had killed. He was of average intelligence and dropped out of school in year 10, relying on his parents to support him. He was a cigarette smoker and habitual drug user who first tried marijuana at age 11 and regularly used amphetamines, cocaine and LSD. His first convicted child sex offence occurred in 1987 when he was 18 years old, Cowan was already known to police at that stage and was performing court-ordered community service as punishment for drug and theft offences. Wearing a pair of orange overalls, he worked maintenance at a public park in Brisbane while children from a nearby childcare centre played around him. Cowan grabbed the seven-year-old boy by the hand and pulled him into a toilet block, locking them both in a cubicle. A childcare worker noticed the boy was missing and started calling out his name. Cowan placed his hands around the boy's throat squeezed and threatened to kill him before releasing him. Cowan's demeanor after the attack was calm and carefree. When the police came by Cowan's family home that night, he barely reacted. He was charged and pled not guilty. He denied putting his hands around the boy's throat and eventually claimed the boy enjoyed what they did together. After his arrest, Cowan was released on bail, during which time he disappeared. He spent two years on the run interstate Before he was finally found in the beachside suburb of Cronulla in Sydney and brought back to Brisbane for trial. The survivor of this attack bravely testified against a smiling Cowan in court. Cowan was convicted of indecent dealing and deprivation of liberty and sentenced to two years imprisonment. Cowan's second convicted attack occurred in 1993 when he was living in a caravan park in Darwin with his girlfriend. Cowan had not informed his girlfriend of his past, And she did not suspect he was a pedophile that evening a six-year-old boy who lived two caravans away from cowan was walking back from the toilets cowan spoke to the boy and enticed him to join him in checking out some wrecked cars nearby after leading the child through a gap in a fence away from the caravan park cowan grabbed him and carried him to a rusty wrecked car he tied him up and stuffed paper in his mouth When the rope loosened during the attack, Cowan took a knife and cut the boy's legs and chest, leaving him to die. Covered in blood, with extensive injuries all over his body, the boy twisted out of his restraints. Dazed and in shock, he stumbled to a service station for help. His injuries were so severe, it was initially thought a car had hit him. He wouldn't tell police who attacked him. Cowan had traumatised the child so profoundly, he was too terrified to name him. Once the rumours of a child molester living in their community spread through the caravan park, Cowan joined the search for the attacker. Nobody suspected Cowan, and the survivor continued to stay quiet. Other residents of the caravan park saw Cowan as young, popular, outgoing, happy, and he had a girlfriend. They didn't suspect him for a second. Cowan even made a scene, saying he hoped the police would catch the bastard. It was all over for Cowan when a DNA sample was found on the child's underwear. When the police asked residents of the caravan park for samples to match, Cowan confessed. The survivor believed Cowan attempted to kill him and expected him to die after the attack. However, the charge of attempted murder was dropped prior to the trial. Cowan used years of heavy drug taking as the reason for his history of assaults. He was sentenced to seven years jail for unlawfully causing grievous bodily harm deprivation of liberty, and gross indecency. Psychological assessments deemed Cowan a pathological liar who lived a parasitic existence with a gross lack of awareness. He believed his victims would not report him, as they probably enjoyed the experiences. Cowan was only required to serve three and a half years of his sentence after acknowledging his sexual deviancy was a problem and agreeing to attend a sex offenders treatment program. After his release, Cowan moved to the Sunshine Coast in Queensland with his pastor, aunt and uncle, Keith and Jenny Philbrook. Cowan claimed to be a reformed Christian who had given his heart to God and was no longer taking drugs. He attended the Suncoast Church, which was located only 100 metres from the Keel Mountain overpass, where Daniel disappeared. Cowan joined a Christian outreach program and regularly attended meetings at the church. Church leaders were never aware Cowan's criminal history involved acts against children, but boundaries were apparently put in place by Cowan's uncle to limit his interactions with children, as he did have some knowledge. During his time worshipping at Suncoast Church, Cowan allegedly tried to rape a fellow parish member, a 15 year old girl. Police were not contacted about this attack. It was believed to have been covered up by the church at the time, a claim denied by the church leader who was adamant if such an allegation was confided to him, he would have remembered it and taken swift action. Cowan soon met and married another churchgoer in 1999 and they had children together. His wife claimed to be aware of the basics of Cowan's criminal history. But as a forgiving christian she trusted he had changed other churchgoers claimed cowan stopped attending the parish once he was married cowan and his wife divorced within five years of marriage and a custody battle for their children took place in the family court cowan was interviewed by a psychologist and he admitted he always worried if things got bad he could offend again but insisted he would never do it against his own flesh and blood custody of their children was awarded to cowan's ex-wife At the time of Daniel's disappearance, Cowan still lived with his wife on Pinch Road in Biwa, a 30-minute drive from the Keel Mountain overpass. On December 21st, 2003, a few weeks after Daniel's disappearance, police interviewed Cowan for the first time. Cowan owned a white 1990 four-wheel drive Nissan Pajero, similar in description to one of the cars a witness had seen at the overpass right around the time Daniel disappeared. Cowan told police he left home around 1.30 that day. He had spent the morning working in his garden. He drove to an acquaintance's house in Nambour to collect a mulcher and he estimated he got home around 2.30. His route took him past the bus stop where Daniel was waiting. Cowan claimed he didn't observe any people or any vehicles at the bus stop when he drove past. When he got home, he mulched some trees, had a shower and stayed in for the night. After this first interview, he voluntarily gave a DNA sample and provided a photograph of himself. He also consented to a forensic examination of his car. This examination did not reveal any evidence Daniel had been inside the vehicle. The next day, police questioned Cowan's wife. She believed Cowan didn't return home that afternoon until about 3pm. Cowan's acquaintance, who he borrowed the mulcher off, told police that he had been at his house for only five minutes to collect the mulcher. The police re-enacted the drive Cowan took that day and discovered there was 45 minutes in Cowan's statement that was unaccounted for. Police didn't interview Cowan again until July 6, 2005. He was now separated from his wife and lived in New South Wales. During this second interview, Cowan agreed with police the composite sketch of the unknown man seen with Daniel at the bus stop shared a resemblance to himself, but he felt it looked more like his brother. In this second interview, Cowan admitted seeing the broken down bus on the side of the road near the Wimbai turn-off. The interview concluded with a final question. If you had have abducted Daniel, would you tell me? To which Cowan replied, probably not. After his marriage ended, Cowan commenced a new relationship. She was 18, he was 37. Cowan was rough with her and derived sexual pleasure from strangling her to the point of her passing out. Cowan's email address at this time was the number 6, ULDV, and the number 8, Sexual Deviant. On September 14th, 2006, police interviewed Cowan once more. He was again questioned about the timing of his movements on December 7th, 2003, and police confronted him about the unaccounted 45 minutes in his story. For the first time since police approached him, Cowan admitted he had a drug supplier, Sandra Drummond. In the unaccounted time in Cowan's statement, he now claimed he was at Drummond's house with her partner Kevin Fitzgerald for half an hour, buying cannabis. When asked why he hadn't mentioned this earlier, Cowan said he didn't want to implicate Drummond, Police later took a statement from Drummond, who confirmed Cowan was a customer, but couldn't recall if he had come to her house on the day Daniel disappeared. At the coronial inquest, Cowan was asked again about seeing the broken-down bus. He said after thinking about it some more, he was now unsure whether or not he did see the broken-down bus, or if instead he had just heard about it on the news or saw it in a reenactment. He also told the inquest Daniel was too old for his liking as he preferred boys aged from six to eight years old. When asked directly if he had any involvement in what happened to Daniel, Cowan said, I had nothing to do with Daniel's disappearance, nothing at all. Bruce and Denise Morecambe left the court visibly distressed. They both felt Cowan was the unknown man seen at the bus stop with Daniel, but there was no evidence of that, and Cowan was free to leave after giving evidence at the inquest. He had answered all questions asked of him, A few days later, Cowan's drug-dealing alibi, Sandra Drummond, appeared before the inquest. Previously, she was unable to give police a definitive answer as to whether or not Cowan was at her home on the afternoon Daniel disappeared. She couldn't remember. But now, there was new evidence. At the inquest, she stated that on most Sundays, she and her partner, Kevin Fitzgerald, would visit the Bois RSL and play the poker machines using their loyalty cards. The loyalty cards actually keep a record of the time you play the machines, and their loyalty cards showed that Drummond and Fitzgerald were playing the machines from 2.20pm on the 7th of December 2003, which clashed with the time that Cowan said he was at their house. Despite his alibi unravelling, Cowan was free to return home. On April 1st, 2011, he boarded an 8pm flight back to Western Australia. His participation in the coronial inquest was complete, and for him, the saga was over. Whilst waiting for takeoff, the passenger seated beside Cowan started some idle chit-chat. The passenger's name was Joe Emery. He was a friendly bloke around the same age as Cowan. They shook hands and hit it off quite well. They had a lot in common. Joe Emery was a career criminal, and he and Cowan spent the five-hour flight to Perth getting to know each other. Cowan was impressed by Emery and he gave him his phone number. The two men remained in contact and formed a close friendship. It was a week after appearing at the coronial inquest that Cowan first heard about Drummond's testimony on the news. Hearing the new evidence placing her and Fitzgerald at the RSL playing poker machines at the time he was supposed to be at their house, Cowan was quick to protect himself. In an attempt to misdirect the police and hide the criminal history associated with his real name, Cowan legally changed his name to Shadow Nanya Hunter. Shadow was his dog's name, Cowan heard the name Hunter on television, and Nanya was short for none of your business. Cowan was living in a caravan park, and Joe Emery visited regularly. Cowan had been fired from his job and couldn't afford to live in the park for much longer. He was desperate for money, so Emery introduced Cowan to his friend Paul Fitzgerald. Fitzy as he was more commonly known. Fitzy was the boss of a crime gang that Emery was a member of. After spending a few weeks getting to know Cowan better, Cowan had earned his respect, so Emery thought he would be a good fit for the gang. Emery vouched for Cowan and Fitzy started him off with some small-time jobs to make sure he could be trusted. As Cowan's involvement increased, he earned the trust and respect from the other gang members. The structure of the gang was hierarchical, and each member worked under a strict code of trust, loyalty, and honesty. This moral connection was paramount in Cowan feeling he could confide in those around him, and it actually discouraged the pathologically deceptive behaviour he had exhibited throughout his whole life. Pimping, drug dealing, burglary, bribing, blackmailing, loan sharking, gun-running, and smuggling were just some of the crimes Cowan committed. He collected money from sex workers blackmailed a bank manager bribed custom officers at perth international airport stole fifty thousand dollars worth of cigarettes purchased firearms and fake passports stole cars transported blood diamonds and moved large sums of money and drugs cowan proved himself to be loyal to fitzy and the gang and he was rewarded with bigger jobs and as the crimes got bigger so did the payouts Freed became Cowan's primary motivation. Fancy food, alcohol, cars, clothes, women, things he could never afford in his life previously were now readily available to him. Powerful men knew Cowan, or Shadow Nunya Hunter as he was now known, and they respected him. Life was good for Cowan. The disappearance of Daniel Morecambe and the coronial inquest was a distant memory as he lavished himself in luxuries. On August 4th, 2011, Fitzy messaged Cowan and said he wanted a meeting. Cowan was later picked up in a car by Fitzy and the two of them drove to meet with Craig. Craig was a corrupt cop who Fitzy paid well for confidential information and Fitzy wanted Cowan at the meeting. Craig gave Fitzy some information about different jobs they were planning and warned him to dump a silver Hyundai they were using as the police had their eyes on it. As the conversation was wrapping up, Craig mentioned one more thing. It was the reason why Cowan was at the meeting. There was a subpoena coming from Brisbane for Cowan to appear at the coroner's court again. Cowan was surprised. That's been a gone, he remarked. Craig said this subpoena was fresh. Cowan became nervously defensive and said he didn't know anything about it. Craig assured them his information was good and they had better prepare for it. Craig left the meeting leaving an anxious Cowan with Fitzy. What's that about, mate? Fitzy asked Cowan. Cowan quickly explained. I was living in the area that Daniel Morgan went missing from, and that's how I fucking met Joe, on the plane back from being subpoenaed over there for coroner's court in Queensland. And I know I had nothing to do with it. My alibi is 100%. There's nothing we can't get fixed, Fitzy assured him. But the thing they want, I know the bosses make sure nothing can come back on us because you know we work as a group there's nothing they can't fix so don't stress about shit it's just you've got to be honest you've got to be 100 percent honest to us you know you can't fucking lie to us cowan nodded and told fitzy there was nothing to worry about four days later cowan met with fitzy again the revelation he was being subpoenaed to reappear at the inquest had been weighing on his mind and he was worried it would jeopardize his place in the game. I am loving this, Cowan said. I am happy. I haven't been like this before. It's not just the money, it's what I'm getting from yous, the mateship. I'm not proud of my past. In prison, I made the decision to never offend again. I don't want to be behind bars for the rest of my life. Cowan told Fitzy that he was sure his legal name change to Shadow Nanya Hunter would mean the subpoena wouldn't reach him. A plan to import ecstasy pills worth a million dollars was lined up as the next big job for Cowan. Cowan's cut would be a hundred grand, and he talked with other gang members about the Toyota FJ Cruiser and boat he was going to buy with the money. On August 9th, 2011, Fitzy collected Cowan for an overnight trip. They were going on a run to pick up cash. Cowan mindlessly chatted to Fitzy about himself, sex, murder, his father and his brothers who hated him, and his trades and skills. An hour into the drive, Fitzy's phone rang. Change of plans. Arnold was in town, and he wanted them to turn around. Fitzy ran the local gang, but Arnold was the big boss, head of the National Syndicate. Cowan had heard about Arnold before, but had never met him. That was about to change. Arnold had just ordered to see Cowan. Arnold was waiting in the Swan River Room, the presidential suite of the Hyatt Hotel. When Cowan entered the room, Arnold enthusiastically shook his hand. Arnold wore a tailored dark suit with a crisp white collared shirt. Cowan was wearing a baggy leather jacket and jeans, his oily brown hair tied loosely at the back of his neck. Arnold led Cowan to a couch and encouraged him to sit. The men sat at either corner of the couch, face to face a metre apart. Arnold leaned back, resting an arm along the back of the couch and crossed a leg over the other. He harboured no tension in the room. Cowan hunched forward, his elbows on his knees. Arnold began their conversation with informal chit-chat. He referred to Cowan as Bud. He listened attentively as Cowan discussed how he had been painting the fence on his farm. Cowan also talked about an injured bird he had been nursing back to health. Arnold asked if Cowan was happy and if he had any problems. Was anyone forcing Cowan to do anything he didn't want to do? Cowan replied no. He was enjoying himself and said everyone had been great to him after two minutes of casual conversation the tone changed abruptly arnold got to the point as to why he ordered to meet cowan this is the actual conversation between arnold and cowan which was recorded
2: listen one of the reasons i brought you here was um as you know i said to you before we've got a walk before we run, we've got yes. to crawl before we walk and as you probably also know I've got a lot of people in my confines all around the country that I pay good money to to get good information from yes. and as this thing's progressing this big job that we're looking at I've been checking out yes. which is only expected of me yes. and there's a couple of things that have come up that we need to talk about.
3: Yes. Right? If I'd known. Oh, I thought
2: it was all dealt with. Look, I was—I've been here on—I'm here on other business. Yep. Uh, I'll be—I'll be straight with you. I'm here on other business, but I got some information through earlier this morning, which has kind of made me postpone all that stuff, so that we can sort this out. Um, what do you need to tell? Is there something you need to tell me, or?
3: Um,
2: and bearing in mind that this whole what we do is based on respect and honesty, yep. right? Well, helpful and just let me stop you there before you go on. Yep. I'll, I'll let you know that I don't care what you've done, yes. all right? Yes. I've got no qualms at all, you know, I've dealt with a lot of, lot of real bad cunts, all right? Yes. And I've had a lot of real bad cunts on my books. What they do, what they get up to, doesn't faze me at all. All I'm looking for is loyalty, respect and honesty.
3: Yes.
2: And I'll pay you back as you pay me back. Yes. So go on. Now, um,
3: because I lived in the area
2: just let me figure out how to turn this bloody thing off.
3: System off.
2: Sorry, go on. Um,
3: I was living in the area in 03 when Daniel Walken went missing, and so sort I've of been interviewed and I was hounded for ages about that. Um, I can guarantee I had nothing to do with Daniel Walken's disappearance. Um, one of my alibis or half an hour of my alibi, they reckon they've got the pieces because my drug dealer now, changed mind that I wasn't at a house. And, um, I've lost my two eldest kids due to this as well. Um, I was brought forward to the coroner's inquest in March, April this year. And, um, I thought that was the end of it. So I was surprised when Craig said to me that there's a, um,
2: Not a warrant, but a subpoena. Yeah, look, I got some info this morning. Um, um, Basically, saying those things. But but what concerns me more than anything else is it's it's telling. It's the info is telling me. And as I said, I pay good money to a lot of people, and I take a lot of risk in doing that to get the information that I need to keep us safe and clean as a group. Because ultimately, you know, if the heat's on you then the heat's on Paul, the heat's on Jeff, and the heat's on me. And I can't afford for that to happen, alright? So... <clears throat> so what's happened is... From the information I've got, alright? I'm told you've done you've done the Daniel Walkham uh, murder. Yes. i have told that it's dead set that, that you're the one who's done it. Yes. And like I said, that doesn't bother me at all. But what concerns me is that I need to, I can sort this for you. You know, I can sort things out, I can buy you alibis, I can, all, I can get rid of st- all that kind of things that needs to be done, I can do,
3: yes.
2: but I need to know what I need to do. Yes. You know what I mean? So you're saying to me, look, I had nothing to do with it, that's not what I'm, what I'm being told. Yes. Um, and that brings me in a real dilemma in a crossroad because I want to move forward with what we're doing, yes. but until I can sort this out, I can't, yes. because you're too hot. Yes. Um, I'm told you yeah, there is a subpoena coming for you. I'll show you the email and got, i got this <coughs> here doing other stuff. I when I this up, I've got better talk to you. Man on man, one on one, um, in confidence, yes. to see if I need to sort, to see how I can sort this out, all right? Because as I've said, from what I'm told, you're good you're good for us. Yep. And I wanna bring you on board, but I've got to weigh up the risks to me, it's not any business, you know? Yep. <clears throat> Have a read of that. Right. that's what I cop this mean. Sure. In line, I'll read it yeah. for you. All
3: right?
2: <laughs> yeah. You need glasses?
3: Yeah, I've got them in
2: the car. Yeah. I'm getting the same way. Yeah. You know? I, I fight it and fight it and fight it, but yeah, I need them. Okay, what, what I've got is Arnold, um, Shadow Hunter, alias Brett Peter Cowan, yeah. the main suspect in the s- disappearance of Daniel Walker. We went missing in Queensland seventh 7 December 2003. My sources tell me that there's no doubt he's the person responsible for this event. Witnesses have placed him at the scene uh, with Morecambe just prior to his disappearance. Additionally, there's about a 45-minute window of opportunity where, where Cowan is unaccounted for. He provided a weak alibi two years later in a family court matter, but there's something about this alibi that's not right, and I'll find out a little more shortly and let you know. The Morecambe case is one of the highest-profile missing person cases in Queensland history, and there's a lot of media interest in it. Karen gave evidence at an inquest under the code name of P7, and I suggest you google some of the info that I've provided to get more of a feeling for this matter, which I've done. Coroner's inquests are recommencing shortly and Karen will again be uh, in the spotlight. If you can't sort this out, then I suggest you drop them like a hot potato.
3: Alright,
2: so that's that's what I've got, and that's why I've, I've postponed everything. I haven't postponed what's happening, yep. but I've postponed the business I had to do this morning to sit down with you one-on-one and sort this shit out, all right? But like i said, I can't sort out what I don't know. Yep. So, look, what happened and how can I sort it out? I don't know. Like I said, all right? Honesty, trust, respect, all right? Yep. You, know where you, you know where you're going. You know what your options are here, all right? And you know the information I've got. And as I said, I paid good people good money yep. to keep us clean. Yep. And if I've got to postpone what we're going to do for a few months to sort this out, yep. I'm happy to do that for your sake. Right, because I'm told that you're pretty loyal. Yep. You build up a good relationship with some of the boys, and they speak very highly of
3: you.
2: So what do I need to fix? Yeah, okay. No,
3: eh? Yeah, I do. All
2: right. So okay. So you get it. But what I'm saying is. You know, I, I, I need to kind of go, I need to stick right back to the whole thing so that I so that if there's anything like, I don't know if they've got any DNA or all that kind of shit No
3: DNA You know, obviously they, they
2: haven't found the fucking body They
3: took my car, they searched my car, did all forensics on my car, they got nothing out of my car
2: Well look, just lead me through the whole fucking thing, how it happened, from where to go and then I'll think about things that we need to sort and fix Want a coffee or something?
3: No, yeah. i don't know how... I've I seen him stand there, I did a loop around
2: and... Okay, hang on, back. What, to- what time was this? I don't know. Okay, exactly. so from what I'm told, uh, it was about lunchtime, early morning. Uh, you were going, where were you going? Where I was you boy? going
3: up to my boss's father's place to pick up a wood mulcher.
2: Going your boss's father's place to yep. pick up a wood mulcher? Yeah. Yep.
3: Because yeah, had done some tree locking in the yard at the farm and I was...
2: <laughs> yep. Then, yep.
3: Yep. Um, picked it up on the way home. There was a broken down bus. Yeah. The Sun bus broken down, and then I seen Daniel.
2: Did you name know it all? Okay. So you seen him on the side of the road. Yep. What did you or something? Um, I
3: went up and around and parked in the church car park. Was, my car was never on the road, so I don't know how they ever got.
2: Because um, there's some. I've, I've heard something about a white four wheel drive four-wheel that they drive. think
3: Yeah. Well. It was not sitting on the highway at all.
2: So you parked behind the...
3: Behind.
2: Near the church or yep. where it was? Yep. Okay.
3: I uh, walked down and sat there and then... Did
2: you talked to him for long or...?
3: I didn't talk to him at all when I got there.
2: Maybe just look as I was waiting for the bus. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Yep. Um,
3: the bus drove past and that's when I said, I'm going down to shopping Centre, do you want to lift? Yep. And he's gone, yep.
2: So um, he'd missed the bus or something, he? No, the bus drove past
3: because he'd okay. given the orders not to pick up any more passengers because it was a broken down one and there'd be another bus through. And yep,
2: yep. Okay, so you, you asked him if you want to lift, he said, yeah, yeah? Yep,
3: he jumped
2: in. Where did he, where did he sit in your car? The front or the back? Seat.
3: Passenger seat, front. Oh, passenger yep. Seat, yeah. yep. Um, he. Um, Instead of taking the shopping centre, I took him to uh, a spot that I knew
2: well, where was that? Uh, to
3: Beewa, just
2: off Pooch and Creek. What's your call? That's that's pretty important which Paul. Beewa.
3: Beewa? Yeah, Yes.
2: Yeah. I in Okay, so you know the area, you knew the area pretty well. You take him to where How far away is that from where you picked him up? Half an hour. Half an hour. Possibly, yeah. I don't know the area. I've never really been explaining how much to do with it. Yeah. So, Alright, so you take him to Beewa. Have you talked to him along the way or... <laughs> is,
3: yeah.
2: uh, no, No problem? No. Alright. Like I said, I'm not judging you at all, yeah. alright? So, bear that in mind, alright? Yeah. Just tell me what I need to fix. Have you taken him to bewa? Um...
3: Yeah, went to an abandoned house thing and I knew where... Do
2: you know exactly where that was?
3: Uh, and road. and, and, and Road. Endaroys?
2: And of Road. How that? No, Roy's Road. Oh, Roy's Road. R O Y S or something, it? Roy's Road at yeah, the yeah. end. Because yeah. what we might need to do is get Joe, I'll get that mail, but we might need to get that sorted. We're going to need to get that sorted, yeah. alright?
3: Um, um, I went back because I just put it under bushes and I went
2: back to. Um, okay, so alright, so so you're taken into the house? Yeah. What happened in the house? Um, like I said, I'm not judging you, right?
3: Yeah. I never got to molest him or anything like that. He panicked, and I panicked, and we grabbed him around the throat and just tore him
2: to All right. How long did it take you to str- to strangle him out? You know? You probably don't think about shit like that.
3: time.
2: So what you were you were looking didn't at? Seen, didn't seem long. Well. All right. So you grabbed him around the throat. He's still sitting in the car.
3: No, no, this is where
2: taken him to the house? Yeah. Where whereabouts in the house?
3: Um just into the there's no furniture or nothing, it's just in the first room. The first
2: room. In the door. Did he fucking spit, leave blood, anything in that room?
3: Mm, not that I
2: know of. What about his clothing? have all his clothing on still or? Um
3: yes, he had his clothing on there. All
2: right, so you've choked him out? Yeah. He's 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 died? Yeah. In that room? Yeah. What's what have you done then with him?
3: Um, taking them out, so i taking him outside, put it into the back of my car.
2: Well, when you say the back of your car, are you talking about the... Where? It was, was a white 4 drive or something? Yeah, uh, yeah Okay. So it like a... Um, like a big door at the back? Yeah. Did it have seats in the back as well, or...? That seats
3: taken Okay. The, mul- the mulch was in
2: there. Alright, so you've light him in the back of the car? Yes. With the mulch there still? Yes. Has he touched the mulch, or...? Nothing. Do you reckon you left any prints at the house, or
3: no. the house is gone?
2: Gone. Yeah. All right, so we'll get to that in a minute. So you've taken him in the back of your car. How long does it, did this take? Do you reckon? Um, I
3: only had to go like from the house 150 <laughs> metres to where I because it's all bush and
2: All right, so you've taken old, him from the house. So
3: it's an old-time mining site.
2: You picked him up from the ha- from the house, put him in the back of your car, yeah. and you've driven him 150 metres or so. To to where? Uh, More
3: secluded bush, away from like, it's in a fenced off area. I was actually going to lease the property to do sandblasting. On. Yep. And um, there's an embankment where the like, sand mining got up to, and then it's all been grown out with trees and bush again, and then got um, the old lake, the sand mining lake.
2: Yep. Look, I'm not familiar with the area mate just draw us a little fucking map so that I, I I know what we're talking about just like from where the house was where the, where the thing was.
3: And then the Roy's road comes in here like that to macadamia or an avocado farm yeah and that sort of spreads out around here like this and everything there's a couple of sheds and then there is the house here yeah this is the road.
2: Here. Yep. I guess it's just the property,
3: property yep, sort yep. Of thing. Um, where the house is, there's a, a little track that goes off down there, through a gate. Yep. Down to, it's nothing. There's a caravan and an old mobile sawmill.
2: About 150 metres away, I reckon? Yep. All right. Okay. So once you've done that, what have you done with your men? Took them out
3: of the car. Yep. Um, dragging them down the embankment. And
2: when you're dragging, did you leave anything? I, How'd you drag him. By the feet, by the... Arms, or
3: then I carried him over and threw him down the embankment.
2: He sort of okay, so you him threw him over the embankment. How how far a minute was it? Meter and a half. A meter and a half down. Was, yeah. Have you left any marks? Or? No. Tell you, so I say you fucking pushed him <laughs> like the old cowboy movies. <laughs> Alright. So he's gone down the bank, down the embankment, about a meter and a half. Yeah. What have you done then? I
3: went down there and when I dragged him through. I don't know how far it was. Um, so I found someone I thought was...
2: A good spot. Yeah. So was that sand, grass spot? Sandy. Did he still have all his clothing on? Did he leave anything behind? Or? No, he had all his
3: clothing yep. on. Yep. Um, I stripped him off. Yep. And um, trees and all that sort of branches and covered his body with that. His clothes I took back with me and threw him into the creek.
2: You threw him oh. in the creek? Which, which, which all creek? Which
3: uh, creek? not too sure. Was,
2: was the, the creek there, the creek. right
3: there, or did I know, no, to... I had to go across one lane, but it's still all secluded and everything, but like an old logging bridge type thing.
2: Oh, They've gone over a logging bridge, down a creek or something? Yeah, there's creek there,
3: and it was fast-flowing.
2: Really you just there. chucked them all in there? Did you have put them in a bag or anything like that? Just what, one by one, or a whole lot, or...? In. And what happened to them? No, they just they sucked sank, off there? Your... sank
3: and floated
2: away. They sank and floated away? Yeah.
3: Nothing none of that's ever been found. Well you're
2: lucky, aren't you? Yep. Yeah. And the all right. so so after he's after car. he's done all that, now I've, I've I've heard something about a fucking watch. Uh, that he had a watch or some fucking thing, some
3: yeah.
2: uh, did you have that? Keep all went in. A whole lot went in. All Everything. Went in. So he didn't keep anything of his? Nothing. There's no chance he was gonna find anything Nothing. of his? No, Alright, so you've left him there? Under the shrubs. Yes. What do
3: you mean? You're
2: home. you're throwing the, you're throwing the clothes right. in, the, in the thing.
3: Yes.
2: You've gone home. Yes, I did. I
3: did stop at my dealer's place and pick up. Did you? Clothes. Yep. So they're lying when they say no, they was not
2: there. All oh, right. Okay. So you did go to the fucking dealer. dealer. Mind you, from what I understand, a couple of years later that came they've they so yeah. spoken her, and I mean, she's probably that drug fuck You wouldn't know what time of day it was, you yeah? know. All right. So you you've, you've You've gone to a dealer's place on the, after you've thrown the clothes in the, yep. in the river? You've gone to the dealer's house? Yep. I you bought picked up that. there or? Yeah. Yeah? yeah.
3: It was 50 uh, yep. Never bought big quantities. I before, oh, just one.
2: green, wasn't it? Yeah,
3: green. Okay, yep. Um, we spent about 15, 20 minutes there, which I always did. Yep. i uh, like to spend half an hour or so, so I'm not walking in and out. Yep. Um, Went home, went inside, figured out my wife, told her I was back, went out and started chipping
2: the timber. Okay. So, that's the end of that for then? Did you go back?
3: About a week. Not well within that week I went back.
2: Had it, had it hit the press by then or what? He was missing him? so, yeah. I think so, yeah. yeah. going to quite- You've gone back about had it, it hadn't hit the press then.
3: Right. Oh yeah, like as a missing as person. a missing
2: person, yeah. right? So what you're thinking, fuck, like, I better get do something there or
3: just in case I went took the shovel back.
2: Okay, so you, about a week later you've gone back, yeah. you've taken a shovel back in the same in your same car, yes. and what have you done then?
3: Um, went down to where I put him yep. and um, only found a fragment of bone. The rest of it was.
2: Gone. has gone. In a week?
3: In a week. The rest was gone. Like There was a patch of... You could tell because it was summer. You could tell that like, there was fat on the ground. Um,
2: so what's that? what do you reckon's happened
3: there? I don't know. There's a lot of yabbies and animals and that sort of thing.
2: Fat yabbies so, now, eh? So,
3: yeah.
2: Alright, so what was left of him?
3: A little piece of bone like that. that
2: I, no skull, no fuck at all? What have you well, done with I think
3: that? That was part of the skull. Yep. And I, I, buried it in there like, broke up with the shovel. So as
2: far as you know, it's still there. Because that's yeah. going to cause us a problem. We're going to have to go and, and grab that. No, i broke it, like it's. I no, no. But nowadays they can do wonders with all this yeah. fucking shit. You know, DNA, all that kind of crap.
3: Yeah.
2: So we'll have to, we'll have to, I'll have to get you to fly over here with some of the, with a couple of boys, and sort all that shit out, all right? But yeah. so, we'll sort that out for you. The shovel. You broke his. I go up with the shovel. Yeah. Where's the shovel now? Don't
3: know.
2: <laughs> what did you I,
3: do I, I, took, it? I took it home with me. it in the garden. And,
2: and you're out that's still there. Or? At
3: the house.
2: Well, My, this is a fucking long time ago. I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Is, there, is someone still living in that house that you?
3: Somebody's re-rented the house. Yeah.
2: So the shovel might still be there. Who knows? Yeah. Mm.
3: Oh. Because I left my wife um, about seven months, eight months
2: after that.
3: Yeah. And um, we were living in, we moved from that house to Nambour to another house.
2: Okay.
3: And then I left her and went to Mooran
2: Bar. All right, so as far as you know, there's nothing of his you've kept that no, can fucking make your tail and stuff. Yeah, nothing at all. And the bit of bone that was left, yes. how big was it? Right. Look, that's amazing,
3: eh? Well, um, that's I'm...
2: So you've gone there to fucking bury it all and that's all that's left?
3: That's all.
2: And you've buried that in that spot?
3: Yeah.
2: All right. Is there anything else you think that we need to fucking clean up?
3: No.
2: Your alibi, the fucking... This, this drug dealer of yours?
3: Yeah.
2: You still talk to her or... I mean, it's You think we far could far approach far. her to fucking pay us some fucking dollars or, or you think we should just... I'll have a think about that, I'll have a think about that, alright? She's
3: on the drugs as far as I know, so she may be approachable and that sort of thing. But it's the boyfriend that's saying that he would have remembered the motor and all that sort of stuff on the chipper. Uh,
2: What's the chipper got to do with? It? Well,
3: it's
2: because I did show him the chipper. Oh, you showed him the chipper yeah. and he's he's saying that he would have remembered but he's saying he doesn't he remember. doesn't remember. Okay. Oh, Shadow, look. I need to make some fucking calls. I need to have a bit of a think. What I'll do, I'll get Adam or I no, I'll get I'll get Jeff to come back up. And um he can take it down, fucking Paul. I'll give you you know, that, that boy feels something to fucking pay. Let me make some calls. When i have sorted out and fucking call um I'll give you a call back and so I can sort out what the I might have to put think about putting out tonight somewhere. Put in a fucking plane tomorrow. With, with one of the boys, or a couple of the boys and sorting all the shit out. Go and have a look, making sure everything is fucking good. Yes. Because if we can sort this out now, it's going to keep us all happy. Yes. Right? Oh, I said to, um... Anything yes. else? I said
3: to, um, yep. Cutting all ties. Well, I've cut ties to the family before. Yep. But I've got no problem with cutting all ties to everybody, even mm. to the state of death to get fed
2: okay look you know i can you know i can back a 15, all right i mean joe we fixed it we yeah. sent joe away for a while we had a few dramas yeah. it's not an issue all right oh I'm sure he's well, right. going all right <laughs> so have faith in me all right yeah. um we'll sort this out for you and um we'll move on i might have to put this job back a little bit till we sort it out that's not a problem all right nobody else now, yeah, now, it's up to you what you're telling us. Right? All they
3: know is I'm
2: going to, need to talk to you about something. Yeah, well, that's not something that I'm going to tell anybody. No, right. yeah. no that's fine. That's we have what? to come up with a scenario then. Yeah. Oh, let me have a think about it. We'll sort something out, alright?
3: Geoff, that
2: means to know. Is that, yeah, you know, like, yeah. I'll someone like, else I'll is going to need to know. I'll, I'll leave that in your talk. Yeah, because I'm going to have to send someone with you to sort all this fucking shit out, alright? But let me have a think about it. Let me, let me get... Uh, I'll get Adam to come back up with Jeff. Um, and I'll make, make a couple of calls. I'll talk to m- a couple of my people that i uh, have been giving me some of this info just to see if there's anything else that could
3: that's that get day, us unstuck. That's that half near air that boy. The new dealer's owner wasn't there. That's put
2: we, we need to clean up. But if there's anything the last year, yeah. and you say the house is gone now. Yeah,
3: the
2: house is gone. What do you mean gone? Demolished? has
3: I don't know, it's like the workers' cottage.
2: Okay. And was there any fucking... No blood. blood, No blood, no spit, fucking... Did you fucking? No, didn't fucking. Did you fucking blow? Did you, you know, did you... So you left no spooks, nothing? Nothing.
3: And even if there was my DNA in the house, I'd been there before with uh, another guy.
2: Yeah. Okay. Now, look. While we're talking about that, is there anything else I'll make a thought for you? Like Like anything else that you've fucking done that's going to get us unstuck? No, there's nothing. Are no more kids we're going to fucking find missing and they're looking at you? No, nothing like that at all. All right. I didn't go out that
3: day on the noise
2: computer
3: either or anything like that. Just happened.
2: So when you threw this fucking... I'm just thinking, why are you talking I'm thinking, you know? Because there's a lot of shit I'm trying to fucking thought out here. There's something about this watch, you know, they're, they're missing this fucking watch. Yep. Did you see a watch you had or...?
3: I didn't.
2: That so might have been in the pocket or some fucking thing. Yep. I wonder if it was heading up the sink. Might have to look at... You're going to have to show them also where you fucking... All, th- all
3: the bloods
2: through
3: there. Yeah. And then, you know, you didn't have a time
2: ago it was and everything. Yeah. That's probably in your advantage. Yes. But what concerns me is the actual fucking place that you're fucking yes. where you fucking, we we took him, you know. But we'll sort that out. He really
3: knows
2: about that place on. Right? Yep. We'll sort it, all right? And like I said, we're just going to have to put things back a bit. Sort it. Yes. There you go, mate. Listen, uh, you want to come back up with Jeff and uh, grab Shadow and um, just take him down for a a coffee or a a drink or a bite to eat or something? I've just got a few calls. I've got to sort a few things out. All right? No worries. See you soon. Bye.
1: After his confession to Arnold, Cowan had lunch with Fitzy. He was cocky now. He boasted again about abducting Daniel Morecambe. He explained he took Daniel to the isolated property in the Glasshouse Mountains and invited him inside for a glass of water. They entered the abandoned building and Cowan attempted to remove Daniel's pants. Daniel said no and fought him off. Cowan panicked, wrapped his arm around Daniel's throat, and squeezed until he was dead. Cowan said he thought he was going to be arrested when police arrived at his front door for that first interview, two weeks after Daniel went missing. The day after Cowan confessed, Arnold arranged for Cowan to return to Queensland with Fitzy and another member of the gang, Ian. Cowan was given strict orders to take Fitzy and Ian everywhere he went on the day of the abduction. Fitzy and Ian were to help dispose of any remaining evidence that could implicate him. On August 13th, Cowan directed Fitzy and Ian to a demountable building along Kings Road at the Glasshouse Mountains, located in Biwa, 30 minutes south of the Kill Mountain overpass. The area was far from civilization. It was a lonely, isolated place. Cowan, Fitzy and Ian walked one by one into the dense bushland. Cowan led the way, and as he weaved through trees, ducked under low branches and climbed over shrubbery, Fitzy and Ian secretly marked the path they took. Cowan retraced his steps with eerie familiarity. He revealed the exact path he carried Daniel's body before dumping him in a pond of water. He also pointed out the location of Coochin Creek, where he had disposed of Daniel's clothing. When the three men returned to their car, the police pounced. With their firearms drawn, they ordered Cowan to raise his hands and get on the ground. For a brief moment, police claimed to have seen an uncharacteristic look of shock flash across Cowan's face but within seconds he composed himself and smiled as he was handcuffed and arrested. Cowan made no admissions and declined an interview. He was charged with murder, kidnapping, deprivation of liberty, indecent treatment of a child under 16, and interfering with a corpse. When Joe Emery sat next to Cowan on the plane, he had been practicing the moment for months, planning every move in advance for the great deception he was about to perform. He smiled at Cowan as he sat beside him and settled into the five-hour flight to Perth. That moment was the beginning of an incredible and intricate top-secret police operation, a ploy to full child murderer Brett Peter Cowan. Cowan was never part of a crime gang. Joe Emery, Fitzy, Craig, Arnold, Ian, and everyone else he had met were all undercover police officers. Cowan had never committed a crime either. He was made to think he had, But it was all part of the elaborate undercover operation. In late December 2010, Assistant Commissioner Condon first considered the possibility of using a special technique against Cowan to entice a voluntary confession for his involvement in Daniel Morecambe's murder. Although there were 35 other persons of interest in the Morecambe investigation, Cowan had made himself the most likely suspect. Cowan was a convicted, opportunistic pedophile who targeted young boys, a diagnosed pathological liar, familiar with the area where Daniel Morgan disappeared, he admitted to going to Nambour on the day of Daniel's disappearance. He admitted he drove along Nambour Connection Road past the bus stop around the time Daniel was there. He drove a car similar to one seen at the bus stop. He bore an uncanny resemblance to the composite sketch of the man seen near Daniel, and he had no satisfactory explanation or concrete alibi for a 45-minute period of time during that afternoon. The seven-year investigation was a cold case. No new evidence or witnesses had appeared, and the body of Daniel remained undiscovered. There was insufficient evidence against Cowan to charge him. So the only thing that would lead to an arrest after all these years was an authentic, voluntary confession from Cowan's mouth. Even then, a confession may not have been enough. They also needed to find Daniel's body. A rarely used policing technique was the final option, a special operation used in criminal cases to obtain impossible confessions. It was difficult to orchestrate, but had proven successful in previous unsolved crimes. Senior undercover police officers created a fictitious crime gang for Cowan to join, with the aim to get him to confess to Daniel's murder. With some cautious reservations, the technique was approved for use against Cowan. A total of 36 undercover police officers from Queensland, Western Australia and Victoria were involved in the operation which came to be called Operation Vista. Five months of intense undercover work led to the moment in the Swan River room at the Hyatt Hotel where Cowan confessed to Arnold. In the adjoining room, the investigation team were monitoring the conversation via hidden cameras and microphones. Everything Cowan said and did was recorded. After Cowan's arrest, an extensive examination was conducted of the area he pointed out to and Dean. A police command post was established, and more than a thousand State Emergency Service volunteers joined the search. Deputy Commissioner Ross Barnett said the search would not finish until they had exhausted every possible avenue and no hope was left of them finding something. They searched for four days and found nothing. Then finally, a small, muddy, gray glow globe-brand right-footed shoe was discovered. Later, a matching left-footed shoe was also discovered. Both were sent for forensic testing. The Morkhams were visiting family interstate at the time the shoes were found. They cut their trip short and returned home. While visiting the search area, the Morkhams considered the location a spiritual place of healing. Bruce Morecam confirmed the shoes matched those Daniel owned and was wearing the day he disappeared. They were examined with another pair of shoes that belonged to Daniel, and the analysis showed matching wear patterns. Three unidentifiable bones were also found in the area. Bruce Morecambe said the discovery wasn't good news or a celebration of any sort, but it brought with it a sheer relief. Maybe it was the final chapter he had been hoping for, for a long, long time. A dive team searched Coochin Creek where Cowan confessed to disposing of Daniel's clothing. Remnants of underwear, a belt, and a well-preserved pair of shorts were discovered. Four more weeks of sifting through sand and undergrowth unearthed a total of 17 bone fragments. They included sections of a rib, hip, leg, arm, and vertebrae. Forensic testing later proved the bone fragments came from one person, a young male. DNA obtained from Daniel's old toothbrush aided in the confirmation the bones belonged to the 13-year-old. Daniel owned a distinctive fob-style pocket watch with Dan engraved on it, a gift from his brother Bradley. It was the watch Arnold was talking about during the confession, another piece of evidence they were hoping to get to sink Cowan, but it was never found. Brett Peter Cowan was charged with murder, child-stealing, deprivation of liberty, indecent treatment of a child under 16, and interfering with a corpse. He pleaded not guilty and was ordered to stand trial. The trial began on February 10th, 2014 at the Supreme Court of Queensland. Bruce and Denise Morecambe told the court they wanted Cowan's identity to be made public, and the court order suppressing his name was revoked. They hoped it would lead to further witnesses to come forward. Cowan's dark history of child abuse convictions were inadmissible during the trial. Cowan declined to testify. His defence team applied to have all evidence of anything said by him to police or agents of the police, including any alleged admissions either by word or conduct, excluded. They argued the statements and actions made by him in August 2011 could not be proven to have been made voluntarily, and it would be unfair to use them against him. As Cowan's own criminal past was protected from the jury, everyone else's was open. Cowan's defense argued Douglas Jackway had killed Daniel Morgan. Jackway was one of the early suspects in the case, who owned a blue car similar to one seen at the bus stop. Unlike Cowan, Jackway's history of abuse against children was detailed to the jury. The defence team referred to the blue sedan seen near the bus stop, similar in description to a car Jackway owned, Jackway's unsubstantiated claims of where he was on the day, the fact Jackway's appearance matched descriptions given by witnesses, Jackway's history of abducting and abusing boys, and Jackway's aggression when police seized his car for DNA testing. The defence team appealed to the jurors that Jackway could be responsible, and that it could not be proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Cowan had committed the crime. According to them, Cowan's confession was not voluntary, but coerced, and Cowan had provided planted information given to him by undercover police officers during Operation Vista. When Cowan's position in the gang was at risk, he admitted to Daniel's murder under the impression he would obtain an alibi from Arnold. But despite his confession, his defence team argued he had no actual involvement in the crime. He was doing it to keep his position in the gang and because he wanted an alibi for Daniel's disappearance so he would no longer be harassed about it by police. 116 witnesses gave evidence and over 200 exhibits were tended. The jury of six men and six women deliberated for nearly eight hours before delivering their verdict. Guilty. Bruce, Denise, Dean and Bradley Morcom each read victim impact statements prior to the sentencing. The following is Bruce Morcom's statement. Ten years ago, you made a choice to rip our family apart. Your decision to pull over and abduct Daniel for your own evil pleasure ultimately caused a level of personal pain to each of us that has made it hard to go on. Over the ten years, we made a face for media with determined self-control on the outside. On many occasions, particularly in the first few months. I was physically ill each morning at the unbearable images of what may have happened to my son Daniel. Even today, I am haunted by thoughts of how long he was actually held captive and what other unspeakable things you did in those sheds at the end of King's Road at Bawat. Why would you really dump someone without clothes? Why was his belt loose and not still looped through his pants? It makes me nauseous just thinking about your total lack of respect for a child's life. Listening to you describe, and watching you with a smirk on your face how you threw Daniel's lifeless body down an embankment, and a week later you returned and crushed his skull with a shovel. Chop. 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 You coldly explained, in an emotionless, matter-of-fact way. We now have to live out our days with the unimaginable images of wild dogs devouring our much-loved sons' remains. Daniel did not deserve that. He was a great kid and would not hurt a fly you have robbed him of 70 years of life. Our family's first sleepless night without Dan on December 7, 2003 haunts me even today. That feeling of helplessness and unimaginable pain never leaves you. The next day, I recall picking up Dean after work in the afternoon on Monday, December 8. He asked me, have they found Daniel? These are four small words that torture me even today, because I had to answer no. I listened to Denise's broken sleep, punctuated by frequent nightmares, and looking into the face of my young twin boy who has lost his soulmate, a raw image that is often relived, which had a profound effect on how I functioned. Nothing about my life today resembles how we enjoyed life as a family before that day. Our friends from 2003 are different because we are no longer the same people. We can be short-tempered and have a streak of bitterness and carry on, caused by your delirious selfish actions we were forced to move away from our unique garden paradise and much loved family home we were running a successful small business that we were forced to sell we could not return to regular employment because we were constantly distracted with disturbing thoughts we were forced to sell all our other investments to be able to survive but survive we did because you made one monumental mistake that day you picked on the wrong family our collective determination to find Daniel and expose a child killer was always going to win. Perhaps the greatest impact your heinous crimes had on me is being witness to the impact it has on the people that I love. You have caused immeasurable mental stress and anxiety to not only me, but to Daniel's mother, Denise, Daniel's brother, Dean, and to Daniel's twin, Bradley. I have also witnessed the impact your cold, calculating actions caused to extended family members. Daniel's grandparents have had years of healthy living trimmed off their life. Daniel's uncles and aunts and cousins, plus mates at school, have all been seriously impacted by what you did. I often wonder about the other victims who you have left in your wake. That too causes me moments of great sadness. Your own children are of course victims of your crimes, and I wonder about them. In a strange twist of fate, the Daniel Morecambe Foundation was established to educate children about personal safety and also assist young victims of crime. I have sat watching you in the same court for close to 40 days, covering the coronial inquest, the committal hearing, the pretrial hearing, and your trial here. Throughout that time, you have been completely devoid of any remorse of what you did to Daniel. Your deliberate actions are now recorded for all to see. It is the most brazen crime that has shocked the nation." sitting in the same room as you revolts me. How you sit there day after day, almost frozen in the one position, is chilling. You have been convicted as a repeat sex offender, leaving a trail of destruction, distress and damage to souls for three decades. Predators like you cannot be rehabilitated. A cunning plan by police has brought you unbalanced. You have been exposed as an opportunistic, perverted, cold-blooded, child-killing pedophile. Central to the facts are not who done it, but you done it. May Daniel's soul rest in peace. Cowan was sentenced to life imprisonment and showed absolutely no remorse. The presiding judge said, quote, Cowan was a convincing, plausible, and adaptable liar. You had no intention of taking Daniel to the shopping center. You were just thinking about what you could do with him. Everything about what you did to that child was horrific and disgraceful. This is not just a murder, but a terrible murder. It has had widespread and shocking impacts. After the discovery of his body, and actually prior to Cowan's trial, Daniel Morgan was finally laid to rest at a funeral held at his old school. It was December 7, 2012, the nine-year anniversary of the day he disappeared and 475 days after he had been found. More than 2,000 people attended the service. The church was packed and overflowing. An unopened Christmas gift from 2003, Daniel's school report card that had arrived the day after he disappeared, and a school photo of Daniel were placed on his casket. Bruce Morecambe told the thousands of supporters, Please do not be sad. Appreciate that the evil act that took Daniel happened a long time ago. Today is about embracing his return to his family and being reflective of what might have been. The colour red featured prominently throughout. Daniel's casket was carried out of the church by his brothers and schoolmates, while friends, family, and the state emergency service members who searched for him formed a guard of honour. The song Daniel by Alton John played. Daniel was buried a short distance from the Morecambe family home not far from the bus stop he was abducted from. Every year on the anniversary of his disappearance, a day for Daniel is held to promote awareness of the vulnerability of children. Cowan has never shown a shred of remorse to the Morecambe family. The Daniel Morecambe Foundation is maintained to this day by Bruce and Denise. It educates school all over Australia, giving them skills to recognize danger and to raise awareness of the dangers of predatory criminals the Morecams have visited thousands of school children, personally spreading the message of protection, safety, and opportunity for all children. The Foundation also offers a huge support to victims of crime, providing everything from money to medical treatment. In one of his first interviews with the media shortly after Daniel disappeared, Bruce Morecams sat nervously in front of the camera, Despite the shock and anxiety of suddenly being thrust into the media spotlight for one of the worst reasons he could ever imagine, Bruce's words were bold. They have picked the wrong family, he said looking into the camera. We will never give up. Bruce and Denise made a promise on the day Daniel went missing that they would find him. They kept their word.